Today's reading is coming from Philippians chapter 1 and we're going to read from the end of verse 18 through to the end of the chapter which is verse 30. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, and that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honoured in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labour for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. I'm going to preface the introduction to this message with a little bit of a warning. Uh, With what I'm about to say, some of you may be nodding in agreement, but there's probably a number who are going to be outraged. Um, And if you're somebody who gets outraged by what I'm about to say, please stick with me and hopefully we'll be on the same page by the end. In our wealthy, humanistic country in which we live, generally we, we value life far too highly. There you go, I've said it, and that might have ruffled a few feathers. We value life far too highly. But let me qualify that. We value our own lives, and we value the lives of our families, and we value the lives of our countrymen far higher than what we should. So, for instance, if you've ever purchased medication for your pet, whether it be a cat or a dog or a horse or whatever, um, you might have noticed, well, actually, I'm pretty sure you would have noticed and probably been a little bit cranky that you had to pay so much for that medication and you find yourself wondering, why can medication for a pet be so expensive compared to medication for myself? You'd reckon medication for humans should be more expensive. Well, the thing is, it is. Um, What a lot of us don't realise is just how much the taxpayer subsidises our prescriptions. In 2017, the Pharmaceutical Benefit Scheme in Australia spent more than $2 billion on the top three most expensive overall medications. And all three of those medications are used to treat hepatitis C. So that works out to more than $10,000 per patient per year. On that medication. 
And yet that's a relatively minor cost compared to other therapies that are funded under the Life-Saving Drugs Program, which can cost more than $200,000 per person per year for the rest of their life. And, of course, we cry foul if the government, and which is actually the taxpayer, if we don't pay that $200,000 to keep an individual person alive for a year. And yet, do we ever consider what that $200,000 could do in the third world? It, it could immunise thousands of third world children who continue to die of preventable diseases every year. How much do we value a life? And why do we value the lives of, of ourselves and of those who are close to us much more than we value anybody else's life? Now, I don't think this has ever been more topical for us and for our generation than what it has been over the last few months. How much a life is worth is something that, that countries across the globe have had to grapple with at the moment uh, as COVID-19 has gotten a go on. And what do they boil it down to? It was, okay, well, what's the cost of containment? How many jobs will be lost? How many people are going to lose their businesses? How many businesses are going to be closed permanently? And how much debt is our country willing to accumulate? And how many decades is it going to take our children or our grandchildren to pay off that debt? And what's going to be the cost of other health care that's going to have to not happen because we're trying to pay that debt off? And then there's the other unseen costs. What about the social costs? What about how many extra suicides are there going to be during this time? And what's going to be, in, be the increase in alcohol abuse and, and domestic violence as a subsequence of that? What about the cost of, of health concerns because people have delayed going to their doctor and so something that was relatively minor is, becomes much more major and maybe even deadly? And what about the delays in surgery? And then the health system's going to really struggle to try and catch up. It already is. There's all of these costs. A and, of course, our politicians, well, what, what sort of costs are they most concerned about? Uh, this is, probably isn't fair on all politicians, but generally many politicians are very concerned about the political cost to them. They want people to, to vote for them again. And if it can get presented that, that there was one single death that they could have avoided by doing things a bit differently to how they did, then they're going to do whatever they can to, to stop that person from dying. Now, we like to think that life is priceless. We like to think that we cannot put a price on a life. But we do. I've heard politicians saying, you know, I, I don't care about the economy, you know, because we, we're talking about lives here. We can't put a price on a life. Well, the thing is we do, and we do it all the time. Uh, in 2019, the Department of the Prime Minister and the Cabinet published a paper entitled Best Practice Regulation Guidance Note, Value of a Statistical Life. And that's not a new thing. These things get updated from time to time, and, and this is just an update of, of one which was already in existence. But what this guidance note does is it gives guidance to those who are working on various projects and, and planning things as to how much money it's worth spending, how much money we should, what should we limit our spending to, to save a life. Right? So, for example, if somebody's trying to plan a road, 
And, and by doing a major upgrade of this section of road, we might be able to save, say, 10 lives over the next 10 years, statistically. So what value do we place on that? Well, to answer that question, they've come up with an answer. Are you ready for it? $4.9 million. That's what your life is worth, according to this paper. Um, I don't know how they how they arrived at that. I didn't go to the um, to the lengths of, of reading it. I just read the summary. $4.9 million is what they value a human life at in Australia, um, or $213,000 for one extra year of a human life. So there you go. Regardless of what many of us believe, that we believe that you cannot put a value on human life, our country has done exactly it that right it's all about how many dollars is it worth spending to save one statistical life to mitigate risk but how much do you value your life what's your life worth i was shocked by the fear that covid19 caused the fear of death uh no, I wasn't surprised that some people were afraid, but I was very surprised at just how afraid another section of the community were. All right Now, we know that, that by far, those who are most at risk are the elderly and those who have serious underlying health and respiratory issues. And many people were terrified, and, and rightfully so. Many people continue to be terrified today. But even many people who are not in the high-risk category are terrified way beyond reason. Statistically, they're much more likely to die of some other thing. But that's not what shocked me. Uh, by, by the way, in all of this, I want to affirm um, that as Christians, we should take all appropriate social distancing measures. We should be washing our hands properly and make sure that we don't go anywhere if we're sick and and... And just yeah, follow the guidance that we're given by the government, um, because as Christians we we should be loving other citizens, and we should be caring for those who are most at risk. So, so I just wanted to say that. Okay, but what did shock me was how many people who claimed to be Christians who were terrified that they might catch the virus. I was also shocked at the selfishness of hoarders amongst whom some are the people of God. Um, let me be very clear here. Uh, the people of God should not be hoarders. In fact, we should be the exact opposite. If we see that our brother or sister is in need and we have two rolls of toilet paper and they have none, then we should give them one of our to rolls of toilet paper. We are not to be hoarders. But the most shocking thing was to see Christians. And I mainly noticed that there was mainly those around about in their 70s, um, right? They've reached the stage where they're enjoying their retirement and, um, and for them, life has all been good. But all of a sudden, the statistical probability of their death has increased. Right, so even though God has promised us three score years and ten, uh, we've sort of living in Australia because we are such a wealthy nation and because we have such good health care, um, 
Most people are living well beyond that. And most people are now planning to live for four score years or four score years and ten or maybe even five score years. And so we get to our 70s and we think, wow, this is the enjoyment stage of my life. This is when I get to go and do things that I want to do. This is when I start to, I can reward myself. And all of a sudden, the prospect of that was put at risk. And some people, even people of God, were terrified that they were going to lose it. How do we value life? And some of you will probably be shocked that I'm even talking about this because throughout history, we Christians, we do have a very high value of life. And, and, and God has instilled that into us. It's Christians who heal the sick in Jesus' name. It's Christians who built the first hospitals. It's Christians who opposed the evils of slavery. It's Christians who give food to the starving. Today, it's mainly Christians who defend the lives of the unborn. And it's mainly Christians who stand with the sick and the dying against the dangers of euthanasia. As Christians, we do value life. And, and it is right to value life. But what about our own lives? Last week, we talked about having an eternal perspective. And this week, for disciples of Jesus, Paul puts physical life and eternal life into a pro proper perspective. A famous verse, which is not often quoted by those who follow a prosperity gospel, um, but a famous verse nonetheless is verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. What a brilliant summary of living with an eternal perspective. And if that's the summary of the Christian perspective of life and death, the perspective of an unbeliever can often be summed up as to live is for me and to die is to lose everything. And yet, the way that some Christians fear death and the way that some Christians hold on to dear life for all that they're worth, that could very well be their motto. To live is for me and to die is to lose everything. And my prayer is that today the Holy Spirit would take us from that worldly perspective of, of living for ourselves and if we die we lose everything and take us away from all of the selfishness that that entails and I pray that the Holy Spirit would give us the attitude that Paul had. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Okay, so as Christians, the pinnacle of our life, what we are aiming for is death. When we die... We get to go to be with Christ. Now, there's nothing better than that. Woohoo! Let's die. Okay, but that's, that's what our faith is looking forward to being in glory with Christ. And yet, with that in mind, some folk become so heavenly minded, they're of absolutely no earthly use. Right? That they view this life as a mere waiting room to get them to heaven. And they're just killing time, passing time, just waiting until they can get the chance to go to be with Jesus. 
And that, my friends, is what I'm calling, it's a form of spiritual selfishness. I'll live through this life until I can be rid of this life and be with Jesus. And such people are so heavenly minded, they're of no earthly use. But what about the example of the life of Paul? Even when Paul was in prison, he didn't have the view that prison was his waiting room until he got to be with Jesus. As a disciple of Jesus, Paul's life, even though he was in prison, was to be full of life for Jesus. We saw that last week with the way that he was sharing with those around him and, and preaching to, the, to, the, to his guards and writing letters to the churches. So he was living life to the full for Jesus. But he was very honest with the turmoil that he felt. If Paul had to make a choice, what would he choose? He says, my, my desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But the flip side of that is not dying just yet is necessary for others. While Paul continued to live, he could continue to preach. And while he continued to live, he could continue to be a witness for Jesus. And he could continue to encourage his brothers and sisters in Christ, those ones who were right there in the town where he was. And, and, and in this letter, he's encouraging the ones in Philippi. And he wrote other letters to encourage Christians in other places. Christians would travel to see him and to hear him and be encouraged by him. And that, my friends, is why Christianity can never, ever become some, side, some kind of suicide cult. Yes, the truth is, if life ends, we get to go to be with Jesus, and that's the best thing. But we can't just end life. Why not? Because that is immensely selfish. God has a purpose for each of us where we live, while we live. Discipleship, following Jesus is a way of selflessness. We live for the sake of Christ and we live for the sake of others. And so no matter how much pain you're in, and you might be in a fair bit of pain, it might be physical pain, it might be emotional pain, it might be relationship pain or psychological pain or torment. No matter how much pain or torment we are in, we suffer through the torment for the sake of Christ. And, and, and this isn't something that we have to do on our own. Paul knew the Philippian church and others were praying for him for his deliverance. And sometimes we might be going through stuff and we might feel like we're all alone. We are not alone. You are not alone. When your brothers and sisters in Christ know your need, they will pray for you. And if you're someone who's listening to this today and, and if you are in the world of pain, world of torment, and you're suffering, I urge you, please, don't try and go through this alone. Sometimes we try and keep our troubles to ourselves because we don't want to burden anybody else with it. Or we might feel really private and we don't want somebody else to know that we're not perfect. Oh, get over it. God has designed us to be a people of God who love one another and care for one another. And we carry each other's burdens. 
And we help each other in our times of need. And we pray for one another so that God can do his amazing comforting and healing work in our lives. And if you are listening to this today and you're connected to a local church, I, I do hope you are connected to a local church. Um, it's, it's good of you to... I'm glad you found Bush Disciples and, and, and you're listening to this today and some people find it helpful for additional teaching. But please don't let this replace your local church. There are Christians in the community where you live where God wants you to be connected. So please get involved in your local church. Share your need with them and ask them to pray. And you can share your need with us here in our church. We will pray for you too. It's easy to contact us. You'll find us on www.bushdisciples.church and you'll find our contact details. Just give us a call. Introduce yourself. We'd love to get to know you. Uh, we'd love to hear from everybody who's listening to this. Um, there's lots of people we don't know who are listening. Um, but we'd love to pray for you too. So share it with your church and they'll pray for you. Paul said in verse 19, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul knew that God was going to answer those prayers and that he was going to be delivered. He didn't know whether that deliverance, well, what that deliverance was going to look like. He didn't know that if he was going to be released from prison, like what had happened at Philippi, or whether he was going to be executed, which he eventually was. But either way, Paul's faith and his eternal perspective understood either of these options, both of these options, as deliverance. What's the worst thing that they could do to Paul? Kill him? Well, That'd be, that'd be tough, wouldn't it? He'd get to go straight to be with Jesus and he'd be delivered. And so Jesus could deliver Paul through release from prison or he could deliver Paul through, through death. Either way, Paul would be delivered. Now, I'm reminded of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Um, we, we read about these guys in, in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. Uh, when they refused to bow down and worship Nebuchadnezzar, um, or the, the, the idol of Nebuchadnezzar, and he threatened to throw them into the fiery furnace. This is what they said. This is coming from Daniel chapter 3, verse 17. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. All right, there's the faith. God will deliver us out of your hands. He's able to deliver us from the fiery furnace. But even if he doesn't, we will be delivered. There's the faith. that The pinnacle for them wasn't this earthly life. The pinnacle for them was to be delivered into eternity with God. And that's the, the same faith that Paul had. But that doesn't mean that it's going to be an easy ride. It takes courage. I do hope you realise that 
Christianity and being a disciple of Jesus isn't something for wimps. To be a follower of Jesus takes courage. It takes immense courage. Paul said, With full courage, now as always, Christ will be honoured in my body, whether by life or by death. You see, the thing is with courage, courage isn't limited to big, strong men. A young, faithful child can be more courageous than a big, burly warrior. You know, it might seem all very academic for us to be considering this question now, that if we were in the position of Paul, would we remain faithful to Jesus? And you might feel about yourself, well, I just couldn't be strong enough. Well, the thing is, we don't need to be strong enough. We just have to have courage. And when we have courage, the Lord will be our strength. You know, Jesus promised us that he would fill us with his Holy Spirit. And if there's one thing that I know we can be sure of, it's that the Holy Spirit will never deny Jesus. He will keep us faithful as long as we trust in him, as long as we have courage. We can have every confidence, we can have every determination that we will never ever deny him. It's not about our strength. It's about God's strength. We just have to have courage and an eternal perspective. Right up. So whether we live or whether we die, the point is for Christ to be honoured in our bodies. For Christ to be honoured in life and for Christ to be honoured in death. For Christ to be honoured in our bodies. How do we honour Christ in death? Well, first of all, we honour him by not grasping onto this life and holding onto this life as if it's the most valuable thing that we have. And we honour Christ by remaining faithful to him, even if it leads to execution, martyrdom, death. So we honour Christ in death, but we also honour Christ in life. What's that look like? Well, Paul summed it up as fruitful labour. Sometimes the Christian life gets presented as some kind of glorious inactivity of the redeemed. But it's nothing of the sort. A life that honours Christ Jesus isn't at all a life of glorious inactivity. If it's better to die and, and to be with Jesus, why do we live now? Well, it's for the benefit of others, through our fruitful labour. The Lord has given each of us gifts, and some of us go away and bury our gifts and our talents. We're not to do that. We're to be using them for the Lord. And he has given us time, and we are to be using this time for him. Every hour that we live is another opportunity for us to share the gospel with somebody who we know or to share the gospel with someone we don't know for that matter. It's an opportunity for us to encourage other Christians in their walk with God. It's an opportunity for us to give of ourselves for the benefit of others. I wonder, 
What major plans have you made for your life? Most people, when they're making major plans for their life, they make some big major decisions, planning around schooling, uh, what am I going to do with school? What subjects am I going to take? And, of course, they're looking forward to the next stage of their education or their career. Where am I going to go to uni if I go to uni? Or, or am I going to do an apprenticeship? What sort of apprenticeship? What sort of career? What sort of job am I after? Well, that, and then we start making plans, big major plans for our family. If you're a farmer, you're probably making some pretty major decisions around farm succession planning. How can I pass the farm on to the kids? How can I provide farms for my kids that are wanting to continue on in the land? These are major issues that people have to deal with. How do I plan for my retirement? And, and maybe that might be the pinnacle for you. I'm going to enjoy my retirement and so I'll save up and then that's going to be the me time. And then you get to the next stage where, well, I've got nothing left. I'm old. I'm tired. I just have to finish up somewhere and that's it. And I die. And and most people, even Christians, make those sorts of plans and, and, and okay, I just have to fit God in around all of those plans. Those are my major life decisions and whilst we give lip service to, well, my, I make all of my major decisions based on God, do we really? Do we really? Or do we just try to fit God around the major decisions that we have made? Paul's whole purpose for remaining in the flesh, as he put it, was for others. For their progress and joy in the faith. That's why he lived. For their progress and joy in the faith. Now I wonder how many big major life decisions have we made where that would ever get a look in. Hmm, I'm going to make this major life decision for the progress of your joy and faith. Has that ever happened? Right, so, so that's Paul's plan for himself to honour Christ in life. And in death, he wants to honour Christ. But what's his hope for the Philippians? Well, it's pretty much exactly the same. In verse 27 it says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Uh, that's his hope, and, and, and that's a pretty worthwhile sort of a hope, isn't it? I know that's my hope for, for everyone who's listening to this today, that your manner of life would be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And that my manner of life would be worthy of the gospel of Christ. But what does that look like? What does it look like to live this present life in a way which is worthy of the gospel of Christ. Well, firstly, includes a firm faith. When word gets back to Paul from the Philippian church, Paul wants to hear that they've been standing firm in the faith, right? So he's writing this letter to the Philippians church, to the Philippian church. And he's keen to get a response. He's keen to hear back how things are going. And he, what he really wants to hear is that they are standing firm in the faith and that nothing has distracted them from it. Secondly, it's a unified faith. He wants to hear that they're not at loggerheads with each other. He wants to hear that they're united in the faith and that they're following Jesus together. 
Thirdly, he's wanting to hear about fruitful labour. He wants to hear that they are striving together side by side for the faith of the gospel. You see, it's not only the leader, it's not only Paul whose life was to be filled with fruitful labour. He wanted to hear that the whole church was striving for the gospel. Now, we preachers, we, I'll let you know a little secret here. We're very scared of what other people might think of us. And so we usually take extra special care that in our messages that we, we, we don't want to tell people to work harder. We don't want to tell people to be better. We don't want to tell people to be nicer or to be better behaved and to stop doing naughty things. You know why? It's because we are dead scared that somebody might accuse us of preaching some kind of works-based gospel. Because when we Protestants proclaim a faith-based, grace-based gospel, we don't want to come across as being somebody who's not doing that. But you know what? I reckon, I reckon we preachers need to stop being scared of what other people think of us. Because yes, we are saved by grace. And no, we are not saved by being good enough or by, by doing enough good things. But today I have a word for disciples of Jesus who are already saved. You have already been saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now that you are saved, God has a word to you. And that word is a word which has been given through the Apostle Paul. And that word is is to strive. Let you and I be a people who have been saved by grace, who are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And a fourth manner of life worthy of the gospel of Christ is not being frightened by opponents, now, I want you to notice that Paul doesn't say that when we're living for Christ that we won't have any opponents. He doesn't say that, does he? But he does say not to be frightened of anything by your opponents. What, why do we even have opponents of the gospel? The gospel's good news. Why is anybody opposed to good news? And it's a private thing, isn't it? I mean, my faith is my faith. Why should my faith affect others? Why should they worry about my faith? Well, the thing is, faith isn't private. It's not supposed to be. I challenge you to explain to me how you can both love God and love your neighbour and keep your faith private. Didn't Jesus tell us to let our faith shine? Didn't, didn't he tell us to go into the whole world proclaiming the good news and, and teaching people how to be disciples of his? Now, I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound very private to me. But even so, why do unbelievers hate it when disciples of Jesus stand firm in their faith? Why do they hate it when we live our lives for Jesus in a way which is worthy for the gospel? 
Well, the truth of the matter is that when we live faithfully for Jesus Christ, many unbelievers, well, they're deeply offended by this. Do you know why? It's because it's a sign for them, uh, not only of our salvation, but it's a sign of their destruction. Every time the gospel is preached and, and we are reminded of the joyous news of, of our eternal salvation in Christ Jesus, uh, unbelievers aren't reminded of that. When they hear of our salvation, they're reminded of their own destruction. And every time that, that you do the right thing, an unbeliever feels judged because you've done that right thing. They feel judged for the wrong that they've done because they compare themselves to you and they realise just how unrighteous they've been. Whenever your behaviour is evidence of the eternal perspective that you hold, an unbeliever becomes more aware of the shallowness of their perspective that is limited to this present earthly life. And this is especially so when we are not afraid of those who oppose the gospel. Paul says this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. You know what? There is no need for us to be afraid. We have a very special privilege, you and I, as disciples of Jesus. Not everybody gets this privilege. It's something which is reserved for disciples of Jesus. And so unbelievers miss out on this privilege. But we have it. Verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Do we understand this? When we suffer for the sake of Christ, this isn't at all a, a sign that we've taken a wrong turn. It doesn't mean at all that our faith hasn't been big enough and so now we're going to suffer. To suffer for Jesus is a privilege. This week I read the story of a 22-year-old lady in India a lady who converted from Hinduism to Christianity. And she discovered Jesus. But when she found the God who loved her, her village despised her. She was beaten and she was kicked out of her village. But she's ended up going to a Bible college, to Bible school, and, and when she's asked what she would like to say to Christians in Australia, she said, don't be afraid when persecution comes to you. It's part of Christian life. It's a privilege to be persecuted. Don't become sad or discouraged. Please pray that God will help me live up to my vision, to share his word with unbelievers, especially in my village, but also other places where God's word is opposed. I also have a deep desire that my father and brother come to faith. Makes it real, doesn't it? 
And you can read story. We can find lots of stories like those. I find stories like that on the website of, of Open Doors in Australia. Um, and these these people that, that we read about, when we hear the stories of how they've stood strong for Jesus in the face of persecution, and even the stories of those who have died for Christ rather than deny him, these stories are an inspiration for us, as Paul was an inspiration for that church in Philippi. And just as that church in Philippi, just as Paul was writing a letter to encourage that church in Philippi, we can hear the stories of Christians today who want to encourage us. But how much do we value life? Are we living a short-term worldly perspective so that, well, I live for me and when I die I've lost everything? Is that the way? That mightn't be what we know in our heads, but in the way that we live and in the fears that we have, does that betray us? Or are we living with an eternal perspective like what Paul had? To live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is Christ. For now, I will labour for him. I will strive for him. Because God has, has me living for a reason. But when the time comes, I will not deny him. And I will not, I will not hold too firmly to this life. I'm not going to act as if this is the most valuable thing I have, because it is not. I long to be with Christ. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that you've given us a glorious eternity to look forward to. And yet, Lord, we confess that many times and in many ways, we're not any different to the world around us. We get fixated on a short-term stuff and, and we hold too tightly to this life. Lord, our prayer is that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. And our prayer is that for us to live is Christ and to die is gain. Lord, while we live, may we live lives of fruitful labour. May we strive to serve you. Give us courage, Lord, that we would share the gospel and that we would encourage other Christians in the name of Jesus. And Lord, even when persecutions come, give us strength that, that we would not be deterred. And Lord, at this time when, when so many in this world are terrified, Lord, give us an eternal perspective that, that we would know that this life is not the most valuable thing that we have, but you are. Lord, help us to live every day of our lives in a way which is worthy of you. Lord, we long to be with you, but we ask that until that time that we would live as your faithful witnesses on this earth. Amen.